Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Welcome to the show. John Davids here. And today I am talking with Jason Freed, co-founder and CEO of 37 Signals. You guys probably know their products like Basecamp and Hey.com, which is an amazing email service. But the story of 37 Signals is actually really fascinating. Totally bootstrapped company. Well, almost totally bootstrapped. They do have an investor named Jeff Bezos. That's kind of a funny story that Jason shares. But they built a company doing tens of millions of dollars without raising any venture capital. And the mindset that Jason has, the counterculture mindset of you don't need to hustle 24-7 to build a great company. You don't need to raise VC to build a great software business. I just love the way he thinks. And he's going to share some great learnings today. Let me know what you think on LinkedIn. You can get me at John Davids or on Twitter at RealJohnDavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. And now let's get to today's show. Most people are going to know who you are. But for those who don't, why don't you just give us a quick 30 seconds on who you are and what you do? Sure. I am one of the co-founders and the CEO at 37signals slash Basecamp. We used to be called 37signals, then we were called Basecamp, and now we're called 37signals again. So you might know us or me from a few different places. We make a product called Basecamp, a product called Hey. We've written a bunch of books, rework. It doesn't have to be crazy at work, remote, that sort of thing. And for the past 23 years, this is what I've been doing with my life is building this company, building these products, writing these books, sharing stuff, and trying to take a... Um, unorthodox approach to business. Although actually, it's frankly, it's actually quite mainstream. But in the tech industry, it seems to be quite unorthodox. So I'm happy to talk about that. And yeah, that's kind of me. That's me in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. So let's go into that. I mean, just to get right into it, you're as an outsider, not not as an outsider, as someone who has never talked to you in person before, but I've been reading your stuff and all that over the years. And it seems to me like you've always had this ethos of work eight hours a day, Hustle culture is bullshit. You know, you don't have to kill yourself to make great products. Can you just talk about was that something you always felt, or did you kind of live a certain way and then realize no, this is not the way to do it, and that it up? You know, I don't think I ever really thought about the amount of time I was putting into things when I was getting started, but I, I did know, I did realize that I could get a lot done in a few hours when I had actually literally a few contiguous hours. You know, the problem with a lot of people's work days is not that they don't have enough time, it's that they don't have enough contiguous time or uninterrupted time. And so I've always felt like three or four hours, if you can get a three or four hour stretch truly by yourself, like that's like that's a full day, really, for most people. And so I always knew that, but it wasn't like 40 hours. I mean it's 40 hours when we have employees and we want to set some limits and some boundaries. But for me, it was always... I worked in spurts, short number of hours technically, but a long period of time continuously. And I was able just to get a lot of stuff done. And then I felt like I had done enough for the day. Like I felt like I made a lot of progress and that was enough. And then I met my current business partner, David, and he worked the same way. In fact, the first version of Basecamp that we built, he was a student still at university in Copenhagen. And he only had 10 hours a week 
to dedicate to this on the side to building Basecamp. And we built it in four months with him 10 hours a week and me doing the design on the other side. So we've always figured out ways to do a lot of work with limited time because our time is of high quality. That's really what it comes down to. Right. So you you built the first version of Basecamp, you said, with one person working 10 hours a day and then you working even less than that? No, sorry, 10 hours a week. 10 hours a week. Okay, <laughs> yeah, sorry. 10, hours, 10 a hours a week. David worked 10 hours a week for about four months for us as a sole programmer. And then there was two designers basically working on, on Basecamp, me and Ryan in the early days. So there's two designers, one programmer, and... Um, we were working more or less full-time-ish, but we also had other projects. We had client work to do. We had other things going on. So we weren't dedicated full-time to Basecamp. Basecamp was a side project, maybe 10 or 20% of our time. And um, it just goes to show when you don't have a lot of time and there's no time to waste, you don't waste any. When there's a lot of time, <laughs> you waste it. You just do. That just ha- tends to be what happens. You know, Scarcity is, a, is your friend. You know, when, when you've got... you know. A few drops of water left, you know, you're very careful with those drops of water. And I think time is the same way. And if you have too much and you know abundant time, you end up kind of squandering it. So we've always been pretty tight on that. And listen, and that makes a ton of sense. And I don't think people think about it that intuitively, but think about it like this. If you have a big house, you will fill up that big house with all kinds of stuff. And before long, you'll say, Oh, we've we have no storage space left. Well, you were fine when you were living in a thousand square foot home, and now you're in a three thousand square foot home, but you have less space. Hundred percent. This is also true at every scale. So not only house, but if you have a room that's too big, well, you end up throwing a chair in the corner that you never sit on, but you need some chair with a lamp and a table, and like you just fill things up, and uh, this just happens. And time is the same way. So when you just have less of it, and you know you need to get things done. And you can make sure that you have contiguous blocks of time or uninterrupted blocks of time. You can get a ton of work done in a relatively short period of time if you're not wasting it and you're not multitasking or being right. pulled and, away. That's the key. Yeah. And so, because this is so counterculture, or at least it was for a long time, I think people are sort of more open to it now with remote work and whatnot. But because this is so counterculture, I want to just understand. So when you're in the early days of building a company, and let's let's just set some scale. I mean, I know it's a private company, but Basecamp, 100,000 plus paying users, maybe a lot more than that now. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, just to yeah, put it in context, we generate tens of millions of dollars in annual revenues and profits. So that's right. sort of the scale of the company. Quite large from that respect, but we have about 75 people who work here. Are you guys... I don't know if you have this number, but like, would you be considered the largest privately owned software company or at least in a, in a certain sort of realm? There's considerably larger ones that are privately owned. But I think that we're probably one of the... Well, we've been around for quite a long time. 23 years as a privately owned company. And we've also been profitable every year for 23 years. So I, I think that might be the record that we, <laughs> we might get. Yeah. But yeah. there's certainly other private companies, many of them, I, and probably thousands of them I don't know about that are, are quite large family-owned businesses, generate multi-generational businesses, that sort of thing, including software companies. So, But I think as an independent, long-running, profitable business, I think we're, there's probably a short list there. Yeah. We're proud yeah. To be on and, that. and certainly, you're one of the few that comes to most of our minds. So when you're starting this business 23 or so years ago, did you have that same ethos? Because I don't know that a lot of founders who are struggling to build a product and hoping to get lots of users one day could actually do what you're describing. I mean, 
Is it that they've just been trained to think another way? Or is it that there is a certain time to work 10, 12-hour days, and that's just not all the time? There certainly were moments, I'm sure, where I put in extra hours, right? And that's because you're on a roll. It's not because you feel like you need to. It's because you are on a roll. And that's a different thing. I think when you feel like you need to punish yourself by putting 10, 12 plus hours a day, every day, weekends too, because that's what you need to do. I don't think that pays off at all. I think that when you save those moments for the moments when you're really on a roll, on a creative role or, or productive role, then you kind of roll a few of those together. You can, again, like accelerate. It's, it's more of an accelerant. It's like a, a square. You've squared or cubed your productivity basically in those moments. And I think that's pretty handy. I'm also like, I think inherently fairly lazy actually. And I think that's another benefit <laughs> to being lazy is like, I know David would call himself lazy too. I know a lot of people who are, I mean, we're not like lazy, lazy, but there's, we're lazy about things that are outside the core of what we want to do. And I think that that helps too, because you just don't want to do a lot of the things you actually don't need to do. I don't know. I mean, this is kind of how I've always worked. And I never, the thing is, I never had ambitions. And I still don't really have ambitions. I'm not an ambitious business person. So I'm not like someone who's trying to build a billion dollar business. Because if you think you are, then you're quickly going to fall into this pattern of, well, how did the other billion dollar businesses get built? And you find an example, and this person worked 80 hours a week, and where, and then you just like, and I got to raise a bunch of money and work crazy. And like, you do that. That's the path that you put yourself on. I didn't pay attention to that path. I don't want to be on that path. I've always just wanted to build something that was sustainable. Like we could keep doing it. I mean, if you enjoy the work and you enjoy making things and you enjoy working with the people you're working with, wouldn't you want that to be able to continue? Continuity is actually what I focused on more so than ambition. I mean, and continuity is tied into profit. You can only continue if you make more money than you spend. And so it's that is really the ambient. I'm not really even goal-driven, but I would say if there was some sort of a goal, it's to continue. Right. And that ethos, by the way, of being lazy, actually, I mean, when you say it, it sounds kind of counterintuitive. But a lot of folks, I've talked to folks in in the real estate world, I've talked to folks, I mean, someone like Andrew Wilkinson also kind of says something similar where it's like, I want to do the thing that I want to do, but I really don't want to do much of anything else. And I don't want to have to do anything at all. And that's really what drives you to create, to shape your business and your life in a way that suits that need. And I think a lot of people sort of hear that and they say, well, you can't be lazy because you run this company doing tens of millions. And it's like, the reason it works the way it does is because I'm lazy. Yeah. Laziness has gets a bad rap. But of course, it can be bad too. Like if you just leave stuff sitting and you know undone, and that's the other version of lazy, which you that's not the right version. We just have an aversion, I would say, to to doing things that don't matter. And we're very good. I think we have a very good nose for that. Like what is worth doing and what isn't. And I don't want to spend my time doing things that aren't worth doing. And that's what I'm extremely lazy about that kind of work, which is why I tend not to do that sort of work. And I think organizationally, that's kind of the organization we built too. We don't push that off onto other people. We just want everyone to be doing work that matters and not work that just is like process-oriented stuff that doesn't really get us anywhere. Yeah. So can you talk about the early days and sort of the rise? Because you famously, you have this sort of cult, work culture that we've talked about already. Have you ever taken venture capital for this or it's totally bootstrap? Yeah. So the company's bootstrap, but just so like I'm above board on all of this stuff. 
Back in 2006, Jeff Bezos bought a small piece of the company from oh. me and David. So that money didn't go into the business. It went, it was like founder shares. So it went to my bank account and, and David's bank account to sort of take some risk off the table. So we've always been 100% funded by customer revenues, never a penny of outside money beyond customer revenues. But we did sell a small piece of the business early on to take some risk off the table. Can you talk about that? that that's kind of a crazy little story. How, how did you meet <laughs> Jeff Bezos and, and, and how, how did yeah. that happen? So we've been approached by all the usual suspects, VC. It wasn't really private equity back then as much, but VC and stuff. And just wasn't, it wasn't what we wanted to do. And then I got a call or I got an email from someone on Jeff's team saying, Hey, Jeff's interested in what you're doing. He saw you speak some, I spoke in San Francisco at this conference called eTech. And I think he was there and saw me speak and just kind of like what I had to say. And it's like, he'd like to meet you and talk about your business. And Pretty much every email I've ever gotten along those lines, I've just said like thanks, but no thanks. But it was it was Jeff Bezos, it's 2006. Like, course. <laughs> so I flew out to Seattle. I'm not sure if we talked on the phone first. I forget what it was, but I flew out to Seattle, met with him. He just thoroughly impressed me as someone who just, I mean, I'd never met anyone like him before. And he just got things immediately. Like he tried to explain something. He's like, he just got it. He could complete the whole idea, even though you've been thinking about it. He'd never thought about it for a second, but he saw the whole thing. And he just had this real positivity to him and it's a special moment. And then David and I met with him after that also. And we sort of decided that like, he, he didn't want to control the business. He's made a bunch of investments in smaller companies that he likes. They're doing unique things. And he wants to support those businesses versus like control the businesses. He's got a million other things to do. So we actually played around for a bit and worked out this deal where he would buy a minority share of the business, small, small stake. He'd buy it directly from David and I. He'd have literally, like, basically no control over the business. He had a little bit of control in the first few years in some ways, but not really. We don't have a board of directors, couldn't force us to go public, couldn't do any of those things. So it was kind of the best of all the worlds where David and I could take a little bit of risk off the table because we didn't know if this base camp thing was going to work or not. It was just two years in on that at that point. And uh, we got a partner like Jeff on board. And it was a non-controlling partner and a minority partner. And someone like Jeff, it's like, you know, your dream, especially back then. So it just, we just did it. It just all made sense. And, you know, we, we have dinner with him once a year for a number of years. We talked to him this last year. It's, we, we kind of have grown apart in terms of like the number of times we talk. We talk maybe every few years now, you know, we're much more mature in the business and are right. more established. But he's, he's there and uh, he's fun to talk to. And, um, that's how that whole thing happened. Pretty good to have on speed dial. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, that's really cool. So, okay. So going back, and as you said, you didn't need that money, that founder share. So when you started, how quickly was it that you were, I'm going to say, flush with cash versus at least paying your bills? Was there ever a time where you were like, oh crap, like we got one payroll left here? Or did, were, were you generating profits pretty quickly? Yeah. So we started the business in 99 as a web design shop. And there was three, uh, four of us, sorry, four of us in the beginning. And we borrowed someone else's office. We had no expenses. We, the three, there were three partners and one employee. We each put 10,000 bucks in. We had saved up each, the three partners. So we had $30,000, no rent, no expenses, nothing. And we landed a, a couple of good clients to get going. And so we were cash flow positive pretty early, not flush, but positive and could pay ourselves back and, could continue. Now, what we could have done is gone off and hired 10 people and got an office and put together this beautiful identity system that costs, you know, a hundred grand. Like we could have 
could have very quickly gotten in the red real quick. Like we could have really, but we didn't. And this is how we've always been. We've always grown within our means. We're always behind the curve. And so when we had four people, we didn't have our fifth until like a few years later. And we didn't have our sixth until another year and a half, I think after that or something, or a year after that. So we've just grown slowly and in control and always made sure that we had more money than we, than we were spending. So Basecamp kind of took off in 2005-ish and that it was starting to generate like over a million bucks a year for us, which was a, a big deal at the time. And then, and we had a relatively small company. And then like we began to have higher margins and, and more uh, really advantageous cash position. And then the business started doing exceptionally well. But in the beginning, it was just, let's make sure we have more than we have that we're spending and let's not get ahead of ourselves. And let's not put that pressure on ourselves. A lot of companies put this pressure on themselves. They've got it kind of going, but they're unsatisfied and they need to grow. They just, I got to grow. And what growth does is it puts this enormous amount of pressure on you. All of a sudden, you're working from behind. You're afraid of not being able to make payroll, like you said. All these things can happen very, very quickly. And then you're, you're out of control and you, you don't have time to think. You don't have time to be creative. You're just doing things for money at that point. And that's where you can kind of lose, lose the path. So I would just say we've always stayed on the path because we've always grown in control and slowly and never had growth actually as a goal at all. And why didn't you raise venture capital in those early days? A couple of reasons. Didn't need to, number one. Number two, didn't know what to do with the money, to be honest. If someone would have given us a million bucks, I wouldn't have known how to spend it. Like I really truly... like. Well, I, I could have hired people that I didn't need and spent blown on marketing. Like That's kind of how you blow money pretty quickly, right? Not that there isn't great marketing, but like we wouldn't have known what to do. We would have just blown it, I'm sure. That's two. Number three would be, I didn't want to be on someone else's schedule. Like when you take money, you're out of the business in five to seven years, basically, probably. Or the mm-hmm. business goes out of business. What I don't like about money, raising money, is that it puts you on this very, very narrow path. You go from having a thousand possible good outcomes to like one or two which is either big enough to be acquired by someone or you're big enough to go public or, or something like that. Or you get to this place where no one wants to give any more money because you're not quite where you, they thought you were going to be. And you're probably now... You built up all this, this weight and mass in the organization that can't support itself because it was depending on outside money. And you took this great business that now is kind of in a mess. And I didn't want to ever find myself in that position because of those reasons. We could screw things up for a million other reasons. But I didn't want to be on someone else's schedule. I didn't want to be forced to sell the business at a certain point of time. What if I like really like doing this? And uh, I, we didn't know how to spend the money and we didn't need it. And we really value our independence. And that's something that just sort of was very clear all the way through from the beginning. It also means there's opportunities we've missed. There's growth we didn't get. There's market share we didn't gain. There's all these things that come with it, but we're very comfortable with all those things because all we need to do is make sure that our business works. I don't yeah, care it, if one of our competitors has 50 times the market share. Good for them. What matters is, does our business work? That's all that matters. And as long as we can make that work, we're in good shape. That's a pretty amazing thing to realize as early as you did. And without, without sort of making a catastrophic mistake first and then learning you know, the hard way. Because I've said before, like people make these big announcements about their fundraisers. What I really want to see is how big was, was your dividend check? Because right. the fundraising amount is great. I, I got a got a seven million dollar mortgage on my house. Good for you. What is that supposed to mean, right? Right. Like, let me add some of that too. By the way, the part of this was was inspired. Actually, I forgot to share the story. Prior to me starting my own business, 
before Basecamp and 37 Signals, I had my own little freelance thing. It was just me. I got this contract with this company in San Francisco called Quaka Sports. This is in the late 90s. I think it was 98. And I went to work there. And they were one of these companies that was doing incredibly innovative, really interesting work around sports and, and the internet. Fascinating stuff. And I was like the 70th employee or something. And I was only there for a few months. And by the time I left, I think they had hundreds and hundreds of employees. They raised a bunch of money. The place grew incredibly fast. It was a disaster to work in. Everyone was packed really tight on card tables. It was exciting for about the first 30 minutes of the day. And then the rest of the day just sucked. They began to fall behind. The expectations were too high. They couldn't meet their valuation. Like All these things started happening. And I just saw what money can do. And money can do great things. But in many cases, it changes the business in a way that you don't expect. And once that high wears off, and you're left with the result and the remnants of the decision you made, a lot of entrepreneurs I know actually would prefer to go back to having private companies at that point that were, that were bootstrapped. And so I, I saw that happen. I, I'd worked in other places. I'd known other people who've gone through this. So all that colored me as well in a way where I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go down that path. Yeah, 100%. I've lived that. And, and it's something a lot of people, like, like I said, learn the hard way. So it's awesome that you figured it out you know, the good way. So you had Basecamp, which is, is and was a hit product. Of course, there's Hay, which is relatively new. Hay is what, two years old? A couple of years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So have you tried to develop like tons of software and these are the two like big hits? Or have you taken a few hits and, they, and they've made it? Yeah, we, we've made other products. So we made something called HiRise, which is our second biggest yeah. hit ever, which is a CRM tool, which we still offer to existing customers. We just don't sell it anymore. We made something called Backpack, which was way ahead of its time, but never really caught on commercially. I think in its heyday, maybe did a million or a couple million bucks a year, which was good, but it didn't get beyond that. We made something called Campfire, which was like Slack in 14 years, uh, 18 years ago. In 2006, we launched that, which was kind of ahead of its time, wrong timing, but it was a great product at the time. We made some other things. We made something called Know Your Company, which we spun off. We made some newsletter software. We did a couple of job boards. One that Andrew Wilkinson bought called yeah. um, "We Work Remotely." We made this other thing called. We made a bunch of things. We used to make a new product every year. Was kind of what we did. And um, Basecamp's our biggest hit by far. High Rise was was a quite a big hit, but not as not anywhere near as big as Basecamp. Hey is now a hit. I mean, it's early days, so it has to sustain itself. But so far, it's been fantastic. Tens of thousands of paid email customers, which is really rare, especially for email, which is free. Most cases, and we're about to work on a new product pretty soon. So you know, you don't hit home runs every time, definitely not. But the thing is, is that I don't look back on anything we've ever done in that realm as as like a failed product. It was just something we built, and some things do better than other things. And that's just how I've always seen things. I don't I don't count successes or failures. It's just like some things work out, some things don't. Some things do better than you think. Some things don't. Some things take a while to work. Some things work for a while and then don't work as well. Like. It's all just a spectrum of, of outcomes. And I don't regret anything that we, we made. I mean, we just made the best work products that we can make. And the market tells you what happens. And that's that. So that's how I look at it. And so are you an idea machine? Or do you have like a crew that yeah. you come up with? Or do you have like a huge whiteboard where there's like 50 things and you pick one to do? How, how do these ideas come to be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, ideas come from all over. But what we don't have is a list of them. I don't believe in lists of ideas. I think the things that keep itching 
and keep scratching at you are the things that like are worth, you don't even have to remember them. They just keep coming up. So like this next product we're going to work on is something that we've wanted to do for a number of years. We kind of put it aside. We sort of did other versions of it over the years. And, but it was always attached to another product. And we're like, it just feels like the right time to do it. So ideas come and go. They appear and they disappear. Some just keep reappearing. And those are the ones you remember. But as with any business, there are more ideas than you can do. Every business has more ideas than you can do. No one has enough money, time, people, whatever to do all the things they want to do. So I'd say the majority of the ideas are more feature-based within products. So within Basecamp, there's 30 things I want the product to do or to do better. We'll get to those eventually. Like you just every six weeks we we launch new stuff. So like we'll get to some of those things. But there's not a long list either. It's just like again, the things we decide every six weeks what we're gonna work on next. Products, though, like it just these things have to bubble up and just stay bubbled up. And then you kind of realize this is the worth the thing worth doing next. So but yeah, ideas come from all over the place. I don't yeah. really know where they come from, actually. Uh, well, I mean, you've you've had some very good ones. So your your products are, uh, I mean, anybody who kind of goes to your website, really like anything your brand touches, I almost see you as more of like an artist than a business person. I mean, you're you're a design person. You know, your background is in design, but like, how much time and energy do you spend kind of coming up with the words that you use and the web design? Like everything that your brand touches looks like it's very unique. Is that very thoughtful, or is that just? Kind of what comes out on the first try? Yeah, it's not on the first try. <laughs> like we launched just yesterday quietly. We're going to announce this formally next week, but a new site, newbasecamp.com. So newbasecamp.com launched yesterday. And um, what you see there is like, like it or not, whatever you know, people's opinions are. It's like that was like the twelfth iteration of of an idea, right? So there's a lot of iterations that go into these things. But something it's, that's always it's up right now, right? I'm looking at it right yes. now. Yeah, with the big so, text. Just for the listener, yeah. So as soon as you go, like the top where you might think there's like an image and three words, there's like yeah. a paragraph. Yes. <laughs> so which is, you know, <laughs> part of this is I don't like following the crowd. I think that if you go to a lot of websites, websites today kind of look the same. Like almost all of them basically look the same. They all follow very similar patterns. So we're very conscious about not following those patterns. We like long form writing more than... And we like headlines too, but we like long form writing. We want to lead with ideas versus just sort of a pithy this or a pithy that. Like we want to lead with ideas. And so the new Basecamp site, it, it leads with this idea that like project management's hard. Now, in most project management systems, you'd imagine the company would, would pitch like, we're going to make your life easy. We can make it easy. It's like, no, no, this is hard regardless. This stuff is hard. Dealing with people and deadlines and pressure, like this is hard. And the problem is, is that most software makes it harder. And when customers come to that and they look at that, they start nodding their head and go, yeah, uh-huh, I know that. That's why I'm here shopping for something else because the three things I tried before, like it made it worse. And so we're trying to capture this feeling and try to meet people with a sense of a resonance. Like People can resonate with what we're trying to say is what we're trying to get to. That's, kind of the, that's how I try to design sites is to find resonance with people so they can nod their head yes. And if you go to a lot of websites, there's not a lot of nodding your head yes. There's like, oh, cool. And that's neat. I want to connect with our audience. For those who really feel this way, I want to really connect strongly. So that's kind of what's always in my head when I'm writing. And... Um, Did you write this yourself? Is, it, is this your work or is this... I write all the sites. So all the marketing sites I write. 
but I no longer design them like in HTML and CSS. So we have a wonderful designer named Sean, who I worked with on this. He's responsible for the look and feel. Of course, we go back and forth together. But I, I do all the copywriting on all the sites. That's like the one thing I really love to do. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavis.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. So on Hey, on Basecamp, 37signals.com, like I do all the writing. So all the writing you're going to see is me with some help here and there from David might ch- chime in, other people chime in, but 90% of it is the writing I do. And that's the one thing that's left from when I started that I'm still good at, I think. Because what happens is, is when you become CEO of a company that like gets larger and has more people, you end up moving away from the things that you started doing and you end up doing other things. So I'm like not as good of an HTML and CSS as I used to be. I'm not as good at spinning up new sites as I used to be. I can do it, but I'm not really that great at it because I haven't been doing it. I'm rusty, but I write a lot. So I still like hold on to that. That's a big thing. We always start with the writing. So our websites are always essentially kind of written first and then we design around the writing. I can see that that signature of your writing on here. So... Just to kind of unpack this a little bit though, what you have is you have a paragraph on top, it's written, but it's written in different font colors. So it's different words and sentences pop out. You use color really effectively. As you scroll down, there's more writing, but again, you're using different sentences are in bold. The words are really catchy. So even if you want to speed read this and skim it, it still makes sense. But if you read it slowly, it's just incredible copywriting. Are you a trained copywriter or this just comes naturally to you? <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, by the way, all this is intentional because I know people read things at different scales. So sometimes you just want to skim. Someone's going to see a, a wall of text, they're not going to read it because that's just how they are. But if a few things are colored or bold, you can't help but absorb them. You don't even have to read them, but you see them. So I, I've always, I like to write in that way. No, I, I hated writing growing up because I, I had to write like things I was told to write. And I, I grew into liking writing when I, started a business. Um, when I get to write about the things we do and like the ideas we have and you know the way we want to communicate. Like that to me is fun. But I don't like I didn't like like writing essays or something like that. I was never really into that. I just admire, I really have always admired great copy. Like whenever I see a great line in a book or something I'm like that's just a great line. Or like great word choice or you know you listen to people or you read things and you or you see great ads. I used to study great ads when I was younger, you know the old Volkswagen ads and Porsche ads and Nike ads and even the old cigarette ads. Like they're just like, they're good, good copywriting, especially the VW stuff with uh, Ogilvy and whatnot. Like those are just wonderfully written things and they really inspired me. And uh, so I don't know, I guess I'm trying to live up to that. I guess my whole career is trying to be a quarter as good as that perhaps, or even an eighth. It's so true. My obsession is economy of words. I just like, like, don't tell me in a paragraph what you can tell me in a sentence. And I, I get very irritated when people take a long time to say something. But just like, like get to the point and not because I'm impatient. A, I don't understand what you're saying. And if you just said it in three words, I would get it. And you yeah. really, really resonate with that. Yeah, I do. And I, I think the trick is, is not to be too dry. 
because I think that you want to have some poetry and some rhythm. So when I'm writing, I'm always thinking about the rhythm of what it sounds like or feels like to read the sentence. So the words I'll use, they need to bounce. Things need to bounce, you know, like so I often use alliteration and like, for example, on this new Basecamp site, like the second sentence is, it's a struggle to juggle, right? So originally I had like, you often have to juggle, but then it's just like, it didn't have it. And I'm like, struggle to juggle. Like that just, that's the kind of stuff I like to, frankly, like that gets me excited. It's yeah. like finding those three words that just sort of work. And they, and they pull you through the sentence because there's a rhythm, just like good music, you know, and yeah. you beat that kind of thing. So that's what I'm looking for in the words. Just to finish this little nerding out session we're having on on copywriting, I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, if you're a fan of Seinfeld, but there's a lot sure. of videos of him talking about how he writes jokes. So he'll he'll make a joke and he'll say, no, no, I've got to put the word pop tart here because it's funnier than than saying Cheerios. I had a pop tart for breakfast, and and those little things are what I think what takes good to great. He's a master at that. Yeah. He'll also talk about like he likes to use like single syllable words like dirt, and there's like a bunch of other. There's, there's a list somewhere of like the words. They all often have a hard, like a K or a T and they're one syllable and they're, they're always funny. Like he's like, dirt is just a funny word. It's just always <laughs> funny, you know, versus mud. It's like dirt. There's something about it. So yeah, he's, he's great at that. And I, I've always admired his work for that reason as well. Besides yeah. being funny. So there's a bunch of, I don't know what you call them, Jason Friedisms or on your website, there's a whole bunch that I was looking at earlier today. Things that you say and they really... There's more to it than just the one sentence. So one of the big things that, that jumped out at me was you say, companies aren't families. Can you expand on, on what that means and why it's such an important thing to understand? Yeah. So that's over, I guess, thing on 37signals.com. Is that the one mm-hmm. you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. So companies aren't family. So you know, we wrote this in our book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. There was a whole essay on this. Because it really began to annoy us that, that you know, it's like, we're a big family here and, this fa- and all this family talk. And meanwhile, like the company that's saying this is like keeping their employees at work until 10 o'clock at night. They're making them work nights and weekends. You know, they have certain benefits that seem great, but they're like, well, cook you dinner, just stay late. It's like, we'll stay late at work to eat dinner for free. Like that's subversive, you know? And you start to look at all these things that these companies say. And what they're really asking for is, is like, is uncompromising sacrifice, like you would a family. Like I've got two kids, I got a wife, like I'm going to, do whatever it takes to keep them safe and all the things. And, and you know, that that's a family. That's a family. Work is not that. Now, you can treat people with respect and provide a wonderful working environment and all those things and not call it a family. You can just call it work and work well and take care of people. But family is used to basically mean self-sacrifice. And I don't think you should be doing that for your employer. I just don't. And I don't think any employer should require that of their employees. And I don't think we should couch it in this language that tricks people into what it really means. So we wrote that because it annoyed us. So our point is like, great companies support families. They don't take time away from families. And nights and weekends are time away from families, period, flat out. I don't care what you say at work. If that's what you're doing, you're not supporting families. How much does your culture and your ethos sort of impact your team? So like when you're hiring somebody to work at 37 Signals, is this a big draw for you? Do you kind of draw people in that know your work, know your culture? Or do you hire people and then they're like, oh, this is really cool. I didn't realize you guys ran like this. It depends on the position. Like we just hired a, a new video person and he'd never heard of us before. His friend like said, you should... He's like, I know you're good at video. And it was a storyteller position. 
And so he applied because his friend told him about it. So he didn't know. But m- most people, most people know. And um, and they're attracted to the overall approach. Now, we don't offer things like equity, like most companies do in, in the tech industry. So like some people won't work here because of that reason. And there's a whole bunch of other things, right? But we think that like the package, the culture, the ability to like literally just put in a good day's work and go home, have no demands on your nights and weekends, the autonomy people have here, the agency they have over their own time. We don't have shared calendars here. So like no one can take your time from you. We rarely have meetings. Meetings are a last resort here. So people really literally have a full day to themselves to do their work, to exercise their skills. If you ask most people what they do every day at work, very little of it tends to be the thing that they're actually particularly... That they were hired for. Right. It's like, can you just let me do my job? Like, You hired me as a designer and 8% of my day is spent on design. That's busted. So we want it to be like 98% spent on the thing that you're hired for. And so people who really want that kind of environment flock to us and we're happy to have them. Do you get a lot of pushback or, or have you over the last 20 years from like the Silicon Valley types? I, I don't know if you ever lived in... I mean, I know you lived in Chicago and now you're in LA. But like when you're in San Fran, are people just like, Oh God, here's Jason with his you know, cr- <laughs> crazy thoughts again? Or did you find people sort of understand it and agree with you maybe? A little bit of both. I think it's changed over the years. I think we were definitely villains more 10 years ago. But what's interesting is that Profits all the rage right now, right? And remote work, you know, is kind of maybe slingshotting back a bit, but like we've been advocating remote work forever. We've been advocating profit forever. We've been advocating reasonable work hours forever, asynchronous communication forever. And so, like, I think that at some point things turn around and people go, actually, maybe they had a point. (laughs) But that said, I mean, we've poked a lot of people, I would say, and, you know, like the industry at large and parts of the industry. And so I, I think we probably made some enemies you know, in the VC world and stuff. But I, I know a number of VCs who are quietly... I know quietly because they, they email me. are quite supportive of, of like running a good profitable business because that's kind of what they're after in the companies that they invest in ultimately is they want good businesses. So they admire, I think, some of that. I think the longer you're around, things come around, which is kind of interesting. So, so a number of people who I think really disagreed with us many years ago, like they now agree with us. And I'm sure there's a whole new batch to disagree with some of the more recent things we've done. You know, We've made some controversial moves recently on certain areas. And so some people don't like that now. So it's just you know, an eternal experiment. That's the beauty of being an independent business. You can experiment and not have to ask permission. And you can do things that nobody would ever give you permission to do. So you can try and see what happens. Yeah. So one of those controversial things, I don't know if this is the one you're, that you're thinking of, but you guys popped up in the news banning political discussion on whatever. And I, I listen, this is like, as a business owner, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Like, what am, what's the right thing to do here? I don't, I don't know. I wish yeah. I could wave, wave magic wand. But so I, I have two questions. I'd love to know how you guys adjusted and if really there was any adjustment during the pandemic or if it was just like business as usual. And then I, I kind of want to see your thought process on this whole political discussion in the office or in the remote office. Yeah. So we've always been a remote company. So like the transition during the pandemic wasn't a big deal for us. But what was a big deal for us, which we didn't realize at the time, is that prior to the pandemic, even though we were remote, we would always fly in the whole company to be together for two weeks a year. So usually in the spring for a week and in the fall for a week. 
And we got to see we, we have people all over the world. So we have people in 16 countries and five continents everywhere, four continents now, I think it is. Anyway, and people would come in and we'd see each other and share a meal and share a smile and share the air and, and you know, share our humanity. Like there's just, we would do that and we would do it twice a year. And it was enough to sustain the fact that we we're all isolated the rest of the year, essentially. During the pandemic, though, for basically two years, we didn't do that. And that hurt because I think that we began to see each other for a time as more as resources and less as humans, more as sparring partners and people on this side or that side, like a tribalism kind of broke out, which is kind of also just happened in society in the US over the last number of years. So I think that happened here too. And we didn't have the in-person moments to remind each other that we're actually all on the same team. That we just didn't have that. Even though there's a lot of cultural discussions and things that happen in the company remotely with the tech that we use, there's just nothing still like sitting down with people and sharing a meal at a table and having fun and having a laugh. So we lost that. We've done that again now. We did one in Miami earlier this year. It was wonderful. We hadn't seen people in two and a half years or something like that. And we actually have one coming up in Amsterdam in a few weeks. So we're flying everyone to Amsterdam for a week, which is going to be fun. So that we lost and that was a big deal. But we didn't know it at the time. And I think that partially led to some of the political stuff that was going on and also the decision that we made and what happened, what the aftermath was. So there was a long string of, I would say, debates and disagreements that were immaterial to the work we were doing. And a lot of things became just heated and complicated. And there was no resolution and, again, wasn't in service of the work that we're all doing here. And this we're a was small just, business. Yeah, just, just, just from my knowledge, this was like, conversations happening, internal communication platform type stuff. So it's not yes. in person. And no, no. was it was this about like George Floyd? Was that the discussion or was it something else happening? It was after that. It wasn't about that. It was after that. Yeah, it was the fact that we were having these conversations mixed in inside Basecamp, which is the product we use, we make and we use to do all of our work. Like we use, just use Basecamp for everything. And... So there's political conversations and there was disputes and debates and people weren't giving each other the benefit of the doubt right in the middle of a project that we're supposed to be working together on. And it was just sort of like, it just was not tenable. And I don't mind people talking about these things in their own channels and their own personal lives. I don't care where you stand on any of these things, really. You know, I mean, there's some extremes where I would care, but like that was not what we're talking about. These are just people on different sides of issues. Right. And, and it just became a mud that we couldn't really trudge through or we were trudging through. And it was just a major distraction and not productive. And so we decided that, look, we just can't do this anymore. And by the way, this is the number one issue I hear from every CEO I talk to about that no one knows how to deal with this. And we didn't know how to... It's happening everywhere. We didn't really know how to deal with it either prior to making the decision that we were going to deal with it by saying, we're just not going to do it anymore. You can have political discussions and societal political discussions and socioeconomic discussions at work on your own channels, if you want to have a little side chat with, but we cannot mix this in right in the middle of our work. We cannot bring these issues to bear in front of the whole company all the time. This just cannot happen anymore. So, so we made a decision, and it was um, we knew it would be controversial, but it was quite a bit more than we thought. And it turns out about a third of the company quit, and we offered a very generous severance package for those who wanted to leave. So some people left because they were going to leave anyway, and now they got to leave on 
with a nice severance package they may not have had before. So there's some of that, but a lot of people left because they just disagree with the decision. And we understood that. They, and they um, disagreed with the idea that they couldn't discuss politics, whether it was Trump or this or that, during sort of like a project conversation. Yes. That's the the nuts and bolts of it. But the in their minds, the implications were much larger. Right. That we were this or we were that. And the, you know how it is these days. Or suppressing whatever. Yeah. And it's like, no, they're actually like, we're at work and we pay people to do the work and like, we need to do this work. This is what we're here to do. And the benefit of the doubt was lost. And everybody assumed the worst. There was this assumption that if you don't agree with me on this, you are the worst possible version of whatever I can imagine that you are. And you can't have that in an organization and then be expected to work together when someone thinks you're the devil or some crazy thing, right? So it just was, it was unhealthy. People left. It was painful. We lost some people who've been with us for 10, 12, 15 years in some cases. It was difficult. But we've since regrouped, hired more people than we've ever had before. So at the time, we were about 60 people. Now we're close to 80, actually, coming in at 80. It actually rekindled our ambition, even though we talked about we don't have this ambition, deep ambition, but it rekindled our desire to get back and just do great work. Like we made this decision so we could do great work. We better do great work. And we want to be more capable and more able to do great work. So we've hired more people. We built out the organization. And um, we're in a much better place than we've been in years. And so it feels great. We're going to do new products again. We changed the name of the company to go back to this idea of being a multi-product company again. And it's been a kind of a rebirth, actually, which has been pretty wonderful. So, yeah, But it was hard. Definitely. No question. I, I can't even imagine. So there's, there's two things I was going to say. So first off, there's a company, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but there's a CEO I was listening to. And he was saying that he implemented basically one of their the company's core tenants is like most charitable interpretation. So when someone says something, you have to have the most charitable interpretation. You can't assume that what they said was meant to inflict harm on you or they're insulting you. If they said, if they phrase something wrong, it doesn't mean that they're attacking you. You have to have the most charitable interpretation. And most of the time, 99% of the time, that's exactly what they meant. They didn't mean any harm by it. And I think that's an interesting way to think about it. And the other thing I was going to say was, and this is really sort of a, an ongoing issue, I think, is like, to your point of, if you don't agree with me on everything I said, it means that you're the worst possible version of a person. And there are lots of people who have different political beliefs or different you know, economic beliefs or, or what have you, who will tell me things, but they keep their mouth shut. They would never say those things in public. And that's sort of like a throwback to like, if you say something wrong, you're ousted. But if you have a conversation with someone, especially if you're just having you know a drink or a beer with somebody, they're the same people. They just have maybe a different thought process. And I feel like that gets lost when you never break bread with somebody. It does. And I think diversity of opinion and perspective is wonderful. And I love talking to people I don't agree with. And right. I don't ever hold anything against them. Like I just... Interesting. Like now I know where you stand and I hadn't thought of that or whatever it might be. But that's not ultimately what was going on in the organization. And to your point about being the most charitable interpretation, that's how I try to be as well. But the thing is, is if you look at society at large, and we all fall down on this from time to time, but like society at large is not that way right now. It just isn't. Even amongst like professionals who are supposed to be doing that and being this way, like People right now in the United States specifically, this actually is more of a US-centric thing. There were some people who left in Europe, but not many. Most of them were in the US. People are not able to see through to the human and the, the point of view that someone else might have. And they just take the, all the benefit of the doubt is gone. And when you're trying to work with people 
and you have to work with people on a daily basis. You cannot work with people who think that way of you. It just it's incompatible with progress in an organization. Yeah. So we just, you know, we look, we made the hard call. It was the right call, we believe. It was painful. We would make the same call again, but we're in a much better position as an organization. And that's what every organization has to do is figure out like, what do you want to be? Where do you want to stand? And you make the call and you let the chips fall where they may. And we've had no problem hiring. We've got a wonderful company, incredible people here, wonderful new talent. We get hundreds of job applications up to over a thousand for every role. Like we're fine. People want to be here. All the other reasons people want to be here. And a lot of people also want to be here because they just want to do great work. The world right now is such a bubbling pit of lava. <laughs> it actually work is, is, is a respite for them. It's a refuge where they can just come and hone their skills and practice their craft and get away from all that. And so we're attracting a lot of people who just want that. Even they might have different opinions. It doesn't even matter. They're like, I want to go to a place where I can actually work and develop my skills and not be not have to deal with all the other things that I have to deal with outside of work. So, you know, luckily there's lots of companies and lots of opportunities for people to find what, what works for them. What was the most challenging moment? So 23 years, obviously, I'm sure you guys had lots of ups and downs. What were some of the really challenging moments that you've had? Would that be one of them? That was by far the most challenging moment. I mean, there was a, there was a moment in that moment where it felt like an existential risk, like we could lose the company. Like literally the company could go under. Like because, there was a moment customers abandoned you or we didn't know. You didn't know. And it was interesting because like business wasn't affected at all. And then you can you can pay attention to places like Twitter and think the world's coming to an end. And it's actually not. So it's like the, all the different places you can look and the things you can tell yourself and whatnot. But also just like how many more people might leave and you know, all all the things you don't know when you're a day or two into it. And I got a call, a bunch of emails and calls from fellow CEOs who've been through similar things, the advice they gave me and David was just, just, it hurts now, just wait and you'll look back on this and you'll be happy with the decision. But right now, it's going to suck. But it's not going to be like this in two weeks, in three weeks, in four weeks. Just like a breakup, just like a terrible, difficult thing where you think like the world is over, time does heal that, people move on, things happen business has continuity, everything's going to be fine. And now we're like in, in the really one of the, the better places we've ever been as a business. But it was a very delicate moment. I'll tell you this though, before we made the decision, David and I you know, discussed this at length. And we also came to terms with the fact that it could end the company. And if it did, we'd be okay with that. David and I have always focused on this idea of negative visualization when it comes to making decisions, which is like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And in most cases, like you try some pricing experiment and you think it's, it's like the worst thing can happen is like it didn't work and you go back to the other price. Or, you know, like there's a lot of things that seem like they're the end of the world when they're not. This felt like it could literally be that for the business. And then we just say, you know, look, if that's what ends it, okay, we had a wonderful 22 year run. That's more than we could ever deserve to have. You know, we did amazing things. It's going to suck for employees because they're going to have to get new jobs that everyone here can get a new job somewhere else. No problem. You know, it's not the outcome we want. But if it did happen, we'd be comfortable with it. And that's, I mean, it wouldn't be comfortable. Like, we wouldn't like it, but we'd be able to live with it. And that gave us, I think, the confidence to just make the decision. And it turned out, of course, that didn't happen. But there was moments when it felt like it could during that moment. 
So that was that was really challenging. There was other times when we spent a lot of time on something that didn't go anywhere that was frustrating. But I would say that's the biggest, that was the biggest real, real, real shock, kick in the face that we've had as a business in, in that period of time. Yeah. Your days right now, like what what does your day look like? Depends on the day. Like this past week we've been finishing the new base camp site and also kind of launching some new base camp stuff. So we're going to make noise about this next week. We always launch, do like a soft launch quietly and just make sure everything's working before we make noise. So next week we'll make some noise. So I've been doing a lot of that, a lot of writing, a lot of reviewing work, a lot of finishing projects that are in flux and sort of in flight and almost done. So a lot of that. Right now, um, we're preparing for the next cycle of work. As I mentioned, we work in these things called six-week cycles. We wrote a book on this called Shape Up for anyone who's curious about this stuff. And our next cycle begins Monday. So right now, I'm prepping the next set of projects that we're going to be doing next cycle. So I'm doing a lot of writing and thinking and sketching broadly to get all that stuff ready to go by Monday when the teams kick off the new work. So doing that, and then we have this meetup in Amsterdam in a few weeks. So I'm sort of looking forward to that. But it sort of depends on the where we are in the business and what's going on. So I don't, I don't have like a daily ritual. I'm not a ritual person. I go to the gym and do all that stuff. But I, at work, it's like I'm more of like an octopus. Like you know, that's kind of a weird thing. But like, got my hands in a few different things at once, depending on what needs me and what doesn't. I try to keep my hands out of things that don't need me, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I couldn't figure out. So I spent a lot of time today on 37signals.com. The yeah. name. What what is the name? I couldn't figure it out. Well, so if you go to 37signals.com and go to number 37, which yeah. is the final, final one, there's a little clue there. So it turns out, so back in 1999 when we were started the company and trying to name it, we didn't have a name. My one of my original partners, this guy named was Carlos Segura. He was watching Nova, which is a science show on PBS. PBS in the US. I think it's probably up in, I don't know. Yep. PBS. Chernobyl's in Canada as well. Yeah, right. Okay. So he's watching the show and it was, they were talking about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So this idea of like radio telescopes listening to signs of life somewhere else. And at the time, so they analyzed like billions of signals, radio waves, whatever. There were 37 signals that were unexplained and signs of potential intelligent life. And he heard 37 signals. And he's like, oh my God, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Just 37 signals. He's like, what do you guys think? We're like, yeah, why not? Like we, again, we didn't know. We didn't have a name. The domain was available. And we thought we could turn it into something more mysterious and interesting. So we're like, let's do it. So 30, so it took like a minute to decide. 37 signals, that sounds awesome. Got the domain and then played into the name, like 37 signals. So we, had, we launched with 37 ideas, 37 points of view. And I've always played on this, this word, this number 37 for, for a lot of different things. And but what's cool is if you go to that page, so if you go to 37signals.com slash 37, and you click on this link in that, it's going to take you to the actual paper that was Carl. So this is a, a paper by Carl Sagan and Paul Horowitz. And Carl Sagan, of course, is a famous science writer and, and scientist. And it's cool that our name harkens back to that. What was really neat is I got in the mail a number of years ago from Paul Horowitz an actual signed copy of the original published paper about the 37 signals. So he happened to see our name somewhere. I think it was in some New York Times piece. And he tracked us down and sent a little letter with the original paper that's nicknamed the 37 signals. So anyway, yeah. this is super not interesting to most people. <laughs> but anyway, that's the story. That's where it came no, from. But I, I love it. If, if you go to 37signals.com slash 37 and then click the link, it takes you to a harvard.edu website, five years of Project Meta. 
an all-sky narrowband radio search for extraterrestrial signals. And then it explains it. But this goes back, Jason, to what I was saying about your brand. I mean, everything from the copywriting to the aesthetic to how you pick the name and, and how you launch things. It's all very well thought out. And I think a lot of people can learn that there's a lot that, that can go into this. And you can make it sort of, as you said, like you can add mystery and you can add interest where others right. might just kind of, you know, uh, oh, yeah, we'll just call ourselves this, whatever. Thanks. I can also tell you, though, too, that there's no grand plan here. So we make this stuff up as we go. I mean, there's some common themes because it's the same people doing it for 23 years, right? David and I, basically, and a few others who've been around for a long, long time. But we kind of make this up as we go. And so sometimes things stitch together really nicely. There are years and or even multiple years where designs aren't quite consistent and don't kind of marry with each other when they come back. And we're just kind of figuring it out as we go. And literally, we don't know more than about six weeks ahead of time where we're headed. So that's sort of... I mean, we have an idea where we'd like to point. But where we're headed is something we decide every six weeks. Amazing. Where can we find you online? Well, 37signals.com, basecamp.com, and hey, H-E-Y.com. I'm kind of not on Twitter so much anymore, but I am. So at Jason Freed. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there too. And then I have a newsletter, which is at world.hey.com slash Jason. So kind of an email newsletter every few weeks sporadically. So that's that. And then you know, interviews like this and, and elsewhere. So And in our books and some other places. Lots of places. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on today. This was awesome. This is really fun. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah. I had a good time. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy episodes like this, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, follow me on Twitter at Real John Davids. We'll see you next time.